ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Hoop Dreams, the basketball podcast on the 8-Bit Collective, powered by those good boys and girls at Audio-Technica. My name is Matt Tilby, and it's the tag team again. It's my hoop and hombre, John Opec, back to discuss another bumper double episode of The Last Dance. Seven and eight, we are getting right at the the tail end of this amazing documentary, Jono. What do you think? Uh, so I was just saying before we started recording, I think these are my favorite back-to-back episodes so far. The combination of um, everything with the baseball season uh, through to the comeback, the 72-win season, uh, Space Jam appearance, you know, it was just a great couple of episodes and it really had the most emotional resonance, I think, with some of those topics that we've um, that I just mentioned. Yeah, it's it's certainly there was a lot to get through in this episode, and we'll we'll try our best to, I guess, go through it um, succinctly and and with um, a lot of clarity. But I mean, there's almost certainly things that we're going to miss because there was just so much that went on in you know the two hours that this was was going on for. But uh, yeah, let's just jump right into it. They start episode seven with the pre-playoff press conference, and um, everyone's favorite GM uh, Jerry Krause is. Uh, in front of the mic, and it's that famous quote, that, first of all, there's no backstabbing going on here. Um, he does a bit of a, a Donald Trump and uh, decides to, I guess, throw a strop and, and leave early, which um, <laughs> leads to the, uh, the the quote, damn it, Craig. Yeah, Clearly, the, way to uh, go, Craig. <laughs> you, you fucked it up for everyone else, Craig. Clearly, there's, uh, you know, a bit of unrest clearly going on with the balls there. Craig um, Sager by the way. Yeah, I mean... Asking that tough question. <laughs> it's such yeah, a, exactly. It's such I a, mean, like, opinionated question. <laughs> well, he's an opinionated man, yeah. so I, I wouldn't have been surprised, if anything. Um, and we also get our second appearance of uh, Mr. Perfect Security Guard. Mm. So now I'm sort of keeping keeping tallies on uh, how often we see him, and we saw him quite a bit in uh, this sort of double header, which was fun. Mm. Um but we start with the was it the ninety eight playoffs, the first round of the ninety eight playoffs against the New Jersey Nets, and of course MJ says that if the Bulls were to even lose a game, they would have to quote fall asleep, um, and sure enough, they almost fall asleep. They're they're dozing off a little bit. They you know give themselves a bit of a scare in in game one. But was this do you think that shot in the arm that uh, the Bulls needed to sort of really get them going for the playoffs in ninety eight? Uh, I think they went into the season with the right. Uh, sorry, they went into the playoffs with the right mindset. They were definitely motivated to make sure it wasn't all for nothing. They, maybe they underestimated the Nets a little, but they never lost. They just came. They just kind of got scared a little bit. So, I think, yeah, maybe that was a good reminder for them to not let things slip too far. Mm. And of course, after that, we do delve about uh, a bit back into 1993 when uh, we get a l- little, um, little look at James Jordan, obviously MJ's father, um, who's a, I guess a, a change, nice change of pace from uh, some fathers of today's NBA players who are, you know, he's nice and respectful. He's very proud of his son. Um, there's a certain ball father who could learn a few things from him. Um, <laughs> Like, even in like, even in today's game, like you'd have to say that most family members, you know, fathers, mothers, are a little bit more like that rather than you know, Mister Ball, wouldn't you? Yeah, I think so. Like you hear, most of the fathers you hear about are, I guess, former players like um, Clay Thompson's old man and Del Curry and, and guys like that. So I guess the balls. I don't know why we're talking about LeVar Ball, but he's probably the outlier as far as um, the personalities you get. But yeah, James Jordan, clearly Jordan's like, I was going to say best friend, but there was another car- uh, another person in this doc that got the lower third saying best friend of Michael. But he was definitely inside that inner circle. He was there, you know, all the footage we've seen celebrating. He's been right next to him. He stepped in when Michael had that sabbatical from responding to media to kind of take that burden off his back in the finals of 93. 
and by all accounts, he's yeah, hugely influence uh, influencing factor in Michael's life. He, him and his mum both convinced him to take that meeting with Nike, and someone that Michael obviously trusted and had a really deep level of love and affection for, um, mm. as a friend as as well as a father. Yeah, they sort of mentioned it in the in the episode, like you sort of said it there. Like he was not only his father, but he was that sort of um, that friend to him, and, and was very close. I guess um, was James Jordan a former NBA player? Because like he no. could have, yeah, he could have been that outlier and been like you sort of said with a lot of fathers in the NBA being former NBA players and being a little bit more responsive to how their you know their sons are playing. But even then, like you sort of saw it like both um, Jordan parents were, you know, front row for every game as much as they could and yeah. they were very supportive. So it's it's very much a, you know, a labor of love for them. They weren't, you know, saying, why didn't you do this? And why didn't you do this? They were, they were, you know, arm around the shoulder if they had, he ever had a bad game, which was very rarely. <laughs> um, and they were, you know, always supporting him when he had a good game. And, and like you said, the, those photos of him when he won his first championship, he's right there. He's so he's almost as much of a part of this as you know his teammates are. He's you know probably half one half of it is is James Jordan, the other half is his teammates. But um, of course, we do get the sad story um, about his disappearance. You, mm. They find his car stripped in the woods in North Carolina. He's been missing for about three weeks and. A lot of them seem to say, look, if he's you know not in contact with um, MJ's mum, that they they tend to find out that you know things are going wrong. And of course, we do find out that he is uh, brutally murdered, um, shot in the chest hmm. by a couple of youths. Um, sad way to go, isn't it? Oh yeah, like to to just be minding your own business and be the victim of a crime like that is. A, a, extra tragic I guess just a guy trying to catch some sleep on the side of the road and it's good like they did they didn't talk about the perpetrators really they didn't give them any more notoriety than they already had but uh, mm. a couple of you know a couple of young 18 year olds that was to me was all the evidence I needed to know it wasn't some kind of like mafia king hit gambling thing which I'm sure we'll get into like what, what kind of like loan shark would pay a couple of teenagers to knock off a guy on the side of the road well yeah exactly like we, we sort of jump into it now it's a lot of people sort of link link james jordan's death to the i guess the issues that michael was having in regards to his gambling and like you sort of said you know a couple of 18 year olds murdering um a father doesn't seem like something that would would have been orchestrated by um, someone looking to repay gambling debts, but um, or recover gambling debts, I should say. But it hit Jordan pretty hard, and eventually, uh, after that, he decides to announce his first retirement. And the scenes of Jordan announcing his retirement, like I, I mentioned quite a bit, you know, whenever these sorts of things happen where he's walking around and there's a whole bunch of people, it's, mm. it's like Jesus reincarnated into a basketball player. And you never really see a, an entire city stop the way that Chicago did when he, you know, hung up the boots, I guess. Um, yeah, It's like he died. Like, it's like he died and, and not his father. <laughs> like, there yeah. were people crying. It was like a funeral. Um, what did you make of this? Like, it's so surreal to see a player larger than life create such a an uproar and a, a, a devastation mm. in a city. It is. It's and it wasn't just Chicago. It was America, really, because the popularity of Jordan kind of transcended hometown fandom. Like he was, like everyone has maybe their own team, but because he was so good he became like a fan like people became a fan of him like if you're a Raptors fan you're probably also a, a Bulls fan um, mm. I guess the Raptors didn't exist at that point but you know what I'm saying like <laughs> <laughs> the way that people a lot of people feel now about whether it's like LeBron or Curry 
and his warriors, like people now a lot more than back then, tend to follow a player rather than a team. And that was the way people saw Jordan as well, unless you were on the receiving end as like a Knicks fan or a Pistons fan. So I think everyone or a was just... Fan. Or, <laughs> or a Suns fan. Easy to forget about the Suns. Sorry, man. Yeah, clearly. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I think that footage was amazing to see. Clearly, people f- like media flying in. That, that wasn't all Chicago media. That was media from all around the country. They, I think they even said international media. So I don't know whether that just mm. means Canada or what, but it was amazing. And the footage of people on the streets, like looking up at the TVs and like the kind of just stopping in their tracks as if it is like reading the results of an election or something like that it was really amazing because we don't have those moments anymore we all have our eyes on our phones we're watching streams on twitter or whatever it is like these press conferences and yeah an absolutely insane level of pandemonium that we just can't really relate to anymore Mm, i agree like it, it reminded me a lot of like the the last Spider-Man movie or the animated Spider-Man movie where they find out that Spider-Man dies. It's basically like that. Yeah. Everyone's like, uh, what happened? Everyone's looking at their phones and there's people watching screens. It's like this, their city's great hero has, you know, has passed away. But like, that's what, that's what I mean. He hadn't died. He's just, he's just retired. But like, mm. we, we then find out or we get the weird rumblings and theories. And this will be fun to discuss with you, Jono. Whether... Jordan was in fact secretly suspended by David Stern. Yeah. Obviously, he denies it in um, in the documentary um, quite succinctly, and even Jordan says it as well. But like, the more that people say it, the more that it sort of kind of makes sense. The more that, <laughs> and I, like, I'm not saying it's it's true, yeah. but what? the more that people mention the the logical sort of notion behind it in terms of. You know, the best player in the league has has done some bad things and the league wants to, I guess, reprimand him in a way that won't, you know, damage their reputation by taking the best player out of the best team and ruining them and perhaps, you know, garnering less ticket sales across the country for the Mm. other teams. So instead of going, okay, you're banned for 18 months, they go, you know, leave out the back door. Don't (laughs) come back for 18 months. You know, you'll be fine. Um, I think it's it, ridiculous. It's like, I, I think it's prepos- it's preposterous. Like Ron Artest didn't get that long for punching a fan in the face. Like why why would they send Michael Jordan away <laughs> for almost two seasons? The the most popular player, you know, the ratings of the NBA dropped. The quality, the level of quality, kind of dropped at the same time because of the expansion. Like bringing in the grizzlies and the raptors around that time as well so there was all these factors fighting against the logic of telling your most um costly expense he's not like he's he's bringing in the most revenue and i think that um it wouldn't be a smart business move on top of the fact that stern had said previously like he hasn't broken any rules so you know i don't think it reflects on the nba as poorly as some of the conspiracy theorists would suggest but man that that theory has been popular and discussed for the last 25 years so it was it was interesting to see the kind of go into some detail on it but yeah nothing nothing uh there to me it's an interesting one i'll say that much like the Mm. more that i think about it the more i could believe it even though it isn't (laughs) true but we'll discuss that another time yeah we can um of course, we get the major bombshell just after that, that he decides to go to baseball. And this is not only something that his father wanted him to do before he played basketball, but it's just a massive change of pace for him. Mm. Um, picks the number 45 and, and signs with the Chicago White Sox, a team that you, you know, you'd seen him play, or not play, but uh, he went to see play quite a number of times, especially in the episode as well. Obviously, he sprints out of a, a media scrum at Comerica Park, um, I believe. Uh, that might be Detroit's ground. I'm a baseball fan myself, it's but I still right. can't get the stadiums no right. One, no one knows. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, he, he signs Wrigley? with the White Sox. Wrigley, Wrigley is the Cubs field. Right. I know that much for sure. Okay. <laughs> um, 
he signs for the White Sox and is immediately sort of sent to their double A or their their feeder team, uh, yeah. the Birmingham Barons, and he picks number forty five, and it's a bizarre sort of situation for him because he says it quite a lot in the video as well as his trainer. Mm. Um, he's now got to go from being basketball fit to baseball fit, and that's a completely different style of mm-hmm. of, of pressure on your body. How how do you think Michael adjusted to that in such a, I guess, quick period of time? Or do you think he did it in, you know, a quick enough period of time? I mean, if we're just talking about, like, how he changed, then the fact that he had, you know, Tim Grover, who's popping up all through this documentary as his trainer and being notorious for being so uh, skilled in that area of, of like developing a body, whether it's for the bad boys or whether it's to get him in shape for baseball. Or then later we see him coming back and not to spoil this podcast, but when he's, when, when they lose to the magic and then he's like the next day he wanted to train to get his body back to NBA shape. I think that shows you the willingness of not only the trainer, Tim, but of Michael to do whatever it took to get himself in the best shape for what he wanted to do. So for, for baseball, obviously, you know more than I would because it's a sport you follow, but so much more about like your lower body and getting those legs mm-hmm. thick rather than like yeah. slim and having that kind of center of gravity and the, obviously the swing and, and everything. So it like even just looking at Michael in a baseball uniform, it looks wrong. Like not because you're used to seeing him <laughs> in basketball uniform, but his body is just too svelte and too like chiseled it's it looks like he's playing dress-ups and um we we saw the amount of work and they talked about the amount of work he was doing not just to get his body right but on his on his working on his skills and everything so i think um that is a really a testament to his competitiveness and determination to see someone drop a sport that they're elite at and pick up another one People talk so much crap about Jordan's failure in baseball and how, you know, he, he couldn't cut it and, and all this, but I'm more impressed than ever with how well he picked up that sport as something that he hadn't done for 14 years. How many athletes mm. from the NBA or from any sport could jump across and like, like how many baseball players could jump across and immediately play in like the development league of the NBA I don't know Scott Burrell's probably yeah, one exactly. of them because he was drafted by an MLB team and an NBA team somehow that's an amazing story <laughs> and we'll probably get into Scott Burrell a bit later but yeah I think they talk about some of his stats being impressive I know he like led the team in steals so he obviously had like that agility that was unusual for a baseball player and if the lockout hadn't happened who knows if he would have ever made it up to the majors, but he was certainly um, giving it everything he had with a huge amount of pressure and people watching him the whole time. Mm. Well, the Barons manager did admit in the episode that if the lockout didn't happen, he thought he could have gone mm. uh, to the majors. And you sort of touched on it, how he's he's quite a very sort of slight build. Even, I mean, in basketball, he's probably, you know, on the... He's not huge. He's not super jacked, but he's a quite sort of physically imposing person. Um, but it's completely different when you get to baseball where mm, body you've fat, got to be... Right? A, yeah, you've got to be a big boy um, in, yep. in order to, to get some decent power out of it. But even in like Major League Baseball standards, he would have been uh, quite a, a productive and, and, and helpful sort of player because a lot of players with his build tend to be uh, good for hits. Like you look at... Um, at Ichiro, who played for the Seattle Mariners, who was a very sort of small, diminutive sort of player, but he, I think, he leads the league in in hits, total hits. Like it's an an immense number that I don't have on the t- on the top of my head, but it just goes to show that like you don't always have to be the hugest player in that league to mm. to do the best sort of work. And even in in you know Jordan's time at the Barons, he had a thirteen game hitting streak. Um, he worked it into a, a, a 200% um, percentage, I should say, uh, with 50 RBIs. So he's basically brought in 50 runs 
So is that good? It's not bad. That's yeah. not bad. Like, like you, people do say, oh well, he was a failure in, in baseball. But like, you look at those stats in that season, like it wasn't particularly bad. Like there have been worse. Um, and given, like you said, with the lockout that happened, um, Jordan refusing to cross the picket line, like it could have been completely different. There are so many videos and what ifs about whether Jordan had stayed with basketball, uh, baseball, I should say. Um, we'll get back to his return to basketball, but hmm. he was certainly not the failure that everyone seems to think he is. So, like, yeah, we'll get, we yeah. can certainly give him credit because you know, as much as the de- the debate wants to rage on, like LeBron couldn't go and play football at the moment now, could he? Like, uh, I wouldn't put it past LeBron. That's probably the the wrong. Um, <laughs> examples to use i don't think kevin durant probably try i'd say (laughs) i feel like lebron could have been like a you know a a fantastic nfl player he had to pick between the two sports in his like senior year of high school because he was like the number one prospect in both but um yeah i I think if you took like i don't know kevin durant or steph curry and, and uh tried to throw them into another sport you'd you wouldn't see the um, how quickly he, he I guess he, he transitioned. It, it wouldn't have been easy to do, especially with so much speculation. And, and he was 32 years old, I think, at the time as well. Mm, exactly. We then jump back to the current day Bulls, 1998 Bulls, um, and we find them a bit vulnerable being pushed uh, by the Nets at that time. And this is where you see... Jordan start to mentor the younger players in the team or the players who have just come through. And you, you spoke about Scott Burrell, who was mm. one of the, the newer sort of members of the team. And uh, he almost acted a bit of as like a father figure, but it was almost closer to a brother. Who, yeah, it was who like a big of, brother that you kind of who sort bully of and pushed on him. And, and yeah, it, well, he almost got into fights with a lot of players and we'll discuss that in a bit. But he... he the team discusses how Jordan pushes his teammates, but the fact that it worked mm. and he pushed them because he wanted them to be held to the same standards that he holds himself. Does that sort of change your perception on, on how he was as a player? Because he tries to, I guess, push his his teammates to that sort of same standard. I think in any other area apart from sports, it would be almost unheard of or unacceptable but people just seem to give it a pass because the goal is to win the goal is a championship and the track record speaks for itself with michael like even will purdue who was like yeah jordan was an a-hole and whether or not he could see past that at the time he definitely acknowledges now he was a hell of a teammate because of uh he was bringing the best out of his people around him and some people do that by the way they play on the floor whether it's like magic johnson being kind of a a player whose style of play elevates others or michael whose determination like i don't know about you but when i'm next to someone and doing the same activity and they're you know giving it everything they've got it motivates me to up my game you know whatever it is and that just makes sense, especially if they're going to be berating you. Like some people won't respond well to that. And I guess that's where the nuance of Phil Jackson kind of being there to control things comes in and is really important. But, you know, I've, I've, I know Luke Longley, who's strangely absent from this documentary, has said like, if Michael, if, like, if you dropped a pass from Michael, the next one was coming and it was going to hit you in the face. Or you wouldn't get the pass. So it motivates mm. people like stay awake, stay aware, stay ready. And then it'll all be fine. And we saw examples of that throughout the documentary, but especially in this episode. Do you think it'd be mentally draining to be sort of yeah, constantly aware <laughs> of that and, and almost scared of Jordan? I think so. But that's kind of the testing that he was trying to do. Like there the examples that they haven't gone into is where it hasn't worked and players have played a year or two years with Michael and then they're gone because they just, they don't want to be there. They can't handle it. And they're not the kind of people he wanted on his team. So it kind of plays into 
what he was trying to do. Mm. Well, we see what happens with the Bulls without MJ in 93 when uh, they look at Scotty as the new, I guess, go-to man. Um, yeah. he, he becomes more of a facilis- uh, facilitator, I should say, um, and runs the triangle offense without him. And for all intents and purposes, it's pretty good. They end up getting um, to the finals and it's basically a do or die situation. Yeah, (laughs) the finals. I wish they went that far. Um, It's basically this clutch situation and Pippen just quits. Like Mm -hmm. I've never seen anything like it. Like it's it's something that would have happened in like a, a, you know, a, a, a kid's team on a Sunday yeah. morning like I don't want to take that shot or I want that blah 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 and you know kid kicks up a stink and um, luckily for them Tony Kukoc makes a, a really solid buzzer beater but how damaging would that have been to the Bulls do you think like if you were sitting there and that mm. happened to you and you were playing how would you have felt I think they they summed it up really well like you just feel gross like everything that you have as a team like all the chemistry you have relies on this concept that the team comes first and sometimes that involves even like today whether it's uh michael or michael's not in the league today whether it's whether it's lebron or whoever like sometimes by being the best player on the floor you're a decoy for a player who can get a better shot and scotty wasn't willing to do that in this time and the stink of it has been on him as Jordan said it would be for his whole legacy. Like it's, it's part, like you can't, you can't talk about Pippen as, you know, an all time great and kind of where does he fit in that conversation? You can't have that conversation without talking about the fact that he sat out when his team needed him. The fact that he did that, uh, the migraine game will come up sometimes, but that's, you know, it's a bit harder to put that on him for, having just this physical moment of, um, you know, illness or whatever it is. But this was Mm. completely, you know, brought on himself. And I could not believe in his interview how he said I would do it again. Like, that just blew me away. Like, all the scrutiny, all the criticism, you know, all the stuff that's been said about him quitting on his team. And he's like, yeah, I'd probably do it again despite even apologizing for it in the locker room. Like I just find that he's, he's so stubborn with those things, like especially that, but also in previous episodes where he's talked about getting that surgery and missing the first 30 games of the season because of his contract dispute. I'm, I'm seeing he's quite a stubborn personality and um, he doesn't have that anything to win mindset that Michael definitely did. Mm. It, it certainly yeah does put a bit of a, a dark sort of spot over his legacy um, which is a bit unfortunate but um, it certainly doesn't help them uh, as they obviously you know fall to the Knicks in the conference semi-finals mm-hmm. um, and at the end of the episode we, we get this it, it felt weird to me with this little I guess montage closing sequence it almost felt like the closing sequence that should have been at the end of episode 10 to sort of sum up Jordan and his his journey in a way that sort of wrapped everything up mm. in a neat little package. But this was weird. Like, he, he, he says the quotes, winning has a price. And he was sort of talking about how people might view him as a, as a bit of a dick. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, he says, that, you know, my mentality was to go out and win at any cost. Like, if you, if you don't want to play that way, don't play that way. He's in tears talking about yeah. this stuff. Like... It's. I was not aware before this documentary that winning meant so much to Michael Jordan that he would literally start crying about it. Like, that's how much he wants to win. Mm. Like, it's so bizarre, isn't it? It is. Like, that's that reaction was one of the biggest surprises of the whole documentary. And I think you could sense the conflict in him. And I think maybe that's what where the emotions come from. The fact that he made this choice to be this way and then it took a toll on him. You know, it's, it shouldn't be easy to talk to people the way that he talked to them. That should be unnatural. I think, um, even if you are that competitive and maybe it's revealing like 
he didn't want people to view him as an a-hole or or you know whatever word people want to use about him but that was what he wanted to do to win and that's what he knew he had to do to win because that was his first priority and to see him talk about it and um get choked up it, it makes you kind of reflect on all the things he said about what's hard about being Michael Jordan and you know it's not as easy as people think it is and it's a, it's a lot of pressure I guess because he's said earlier in this episode he never asked anyone to do anything that he wasn't willing to do so he therefore mm. had to deliver if he's abusing people for screwing up and then he screws up all of his uh, work in that area kind of gets lost or, or lessened or cheapened. So, um, yeah, I, I think that was a really telling piece of um, footage. And then for him to literally ask for a break in the interview um, just says so much. And I, I actually was listening to the Jalen and Jacoby recap of this with the director of the series. And he said that that was 45 minutes into the first interview they did with Jordan really so right off the bat they were hit with that and kind of you know you said maybe they should have saved that for the end of the 10th episode it makes me think they're gonna have some bombshells in the next couple of episodes to show this one now <laughs> god uh, I'm gonna be an absolute mess next week I'll tell you that <laughs> Uh, we end up starting episode 8 back in 1998 as we end up going to the next round uh, against the, I was going to say the New Orleans Hornets, the Charlotte Hornets, <laughs> the original Hornets at that time. Yeah. Uh, and BJ Armstrong has moved on from the Bulls to um, the Hornets. And let's just be honest, he comes up clutch in that game. Yeah. And it's... Well, the, sec- it's the second game, right? Yeah, second game. They got game. torched in and, the first one, yeah. Yeah. And basically... They sort of, they sort of play it off as like Jordan having Vietnam style flashbacks about BJ like screaming in his face. And I was like, <laughs> yes, it was a it was a good clutch moment, but it's not like you know, your mother and father had had both been killed or you know a massive accident happened. Like, and that I guess that just goes to show how he, and I, I guess we'll talk about it now. But like he will find any way to get back at anyone he feels has slighted him. Yeah. <laughs> I guess he felt that BJ had slighted him quite a bit because, let's be honest, he went off in that next game. And, of course, um, Michael Wilbon uh, comes in to talk about the LeBradford Smith game. He yes. <laughs> 37 points in one game against the Bulls. And, look, let's be honest, in today's NBA, that's a pretty solid game. MJ, <laughs> MJ comes back and has 37 points in one half in the next encounter against the Bullets. 36, yeah. Yeah. And is there, like, could you think of anyone in today's game who is as, I guess, mentally driven to prove a point like that? No, definitely not. Uh, I'm trying to think. There's no one as vindictive as that. Maybe Kevin Durant with the way that he interacts with his burner accounts, but not to that (laughs) level, you know. I think this these two episodes were the best example of that. You know, we've had other stories where he's gone up to the reporters and said like, you know, I've proven you wrong, I've proven you wrong, you're next, Sam Smith. But this in this episode, we get the incident with the rookie that you just mentioned. We get George Carl at the restaurant not saying hello to him. Yeah. We, we get, um, you know, like Sports Illustrated doing that cover of him playing baseball and he never did an interview with them again, apparently. And the BJ Armstrong thing, like BJ didn't ask to leave Chicago. <laughs> he got t- taken in the expansion draft and then um, he refused to play for the Raptors. So they sent him to Golden State Warriors and then he was traded to the Hornets. So it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't his choice to leave the dynasty, I don't think. Mm. And, you know, Horace Grant, you know, we see that coming up. Like there's just all this motivation that he could come up with and to find out that the story about like nice game Mike to find out that's not even true. It literally shows that he will create animosity where there isn't any, if it helps him get an edge and um, it's, it's scary, isn't it? It is. And to think that BJ Armstrong knows this 
and still had that reaction. Like he, he knew that it would um, rub MJ the wrong way, but he should have known that it would cause him to come out firing after that too. Mm. Do you find MJ swinging a baseball bat with a cigar in his mouth sitting in his locker a little bit intimidating? Was yeah. it just me? Yeah. Like, it had that vibe, didn't it? It was great. And what he was like, saying too, like he's, he's yeah. saying like, talk trash when the scores are tied. Talk trash when the, you know, <laughs> when you're losing, that's that's hard. That's brave. But to talk trash when you've won or when you're winning doesn't take any balls, I guess. And I, I agree with him. Anyone can talk trash when you're on top. <laughs> mm. Well, the, uh, the balls end up knocking out the Hornets and they get to the Pacers, which we'll discuss in a little bit. But we move back into 1994 where the baseball strike has taken full effect and as I mentioned earlier, Jordan didn't really want to cross the picket line. So basically, he's got some time on his hands while uh, baseball is on a downturn. And lo and behold, uh, he has a bit of a, a meetup with BJ. And they start basically going at it one-on-ones and turns into full training. Rumblings of return, um, I guess, are in full full flight. And, mm. and then we end up, of course, getting the famous press release Two words, I'm back. Could so you think of a, a a better way to announce a return than that? Doing it on Twitter would be pretty cool these days. Just like <laughs> tweet, like, I'm back. And then just a million retweets instantly. That would be pretty epic. But yeah, I love that story of like David Falk, the, the agent kind of like trying to craft something that sums up, you know, all the narrative that he wants to convey about why he's coming back. And then... Michael's like, nah, just do this. That's all, all we need. And I also love the rumblings that we're seeing of this old media where uh, whether it was the baseball game before he announced his retirement, people kind of cottoning on to the rumors and then it just seems like worst kept secrets all over the place with the way that the news cycle was back then. So that, that that's kind of interesting. But yeah, everyone knew that he was turning up to practice now and then and having pickup games and kind of there's, there's footage of him just literally turning up to a rec league and just playing some pickup with nobodies basically. So he never completely walked away and he even left the window open to return when he retired. So I think it was something people were hoping for and it was like people constantly yelling at him on the street, like come back, Michael. Um, I've got a book called rebound the odyssey of Michael Jordan by Bob Green. And that chronicles kind of that lockout period through to his first seasons back in the NBA. And the decisions that that he was making in that time, yeah, he missed the NBA and he wanted to, you know, with the competitive nature he had, he wanted to show the new stars that were uh, popping up in the league, like Sean Kemp's, even Latrell Sprewell and guys like this. He wanted to show him he was still the top dog, so it doesn't surprise me that even when he wasn't playing NBA, he was finding motivation. Yeah, they they sort of mention it like he he wasn't coming back to help his team out or, or come back and be you know at a, at a decent level. He wanted to come back and be the best player in the league again. Mm. And I mean, we certainly saw him do that. But um, first game without his dad. He wears number 45. Yeah. And the, the, it's the, the famous sort of jersey other than 23. Like, obviously, they'd retired 23, and he saw this as a, a bit of a new beginning for him. Like, you can't you can't think of any other sort of famous number changes in history, like, other than maybe Kobe going yeah, from Kobe. 8 to 24. Like, that's pretty much it. I mean, LeBron went from 23 to 6 in Miami, so that would probably be the other major one. But yeah, it's it's unusual within the same team to do it. Kobe, you know, <laughs> it makes sense that Kobe did it because he copied everything else that MJ did. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. But uh, we do head back to Madison Square Garden. We're, we're in New York quite a bit for this documentary. Um, and of course, mm. we get the double nickel game. Yeah. Where, in your opinion, in, in, in I guess a list of hypothetical, hypothetical list of... Um, best ever Jordan games where does this rank for uh, you 
it's got a high degree of difficulty because he'd kind of just come back. Uh, what was it? His third game back or mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah, it's and doing it in Madison Square Garden, it, it it's one of the biggest statement games these ever made because the statement was simple, like I'm back, like it was the on court version of that press release. And to do it there with all the celebrities and all the national media attention, it was just putting a stamp back on the game. Like you can't just come across the bulls and expect that it's going to be any different than it was before. It was different. He didn't have his body back where it was, but it just showed that that was lying beneath the surface that he could still do what he used to. Mm, Exactly. And of course we, uh, we get a bit of a, an idea of the up and coming teams, around the Bulls at this time. And one of them is, of course, the Orlando Magic, as we had expressed earlier. And I think it they flew under the radar, especially in this documentary, around that sort of 93, 94 time. They were a good team. Like, you've obviously got young yeah. Shaq, you know, Penny, Penny Hardaway, Nick Anderson. Like, if Horace, the Bulls weren't yeah. around... Yeah, it, of course, Horace Grant, um, who, of course, uh, reject. I believe he rejected the contract from the Bulls and, and went... Uh, to Orlando? Yeah, there were some complications around like verbal agreements and then the agent wasn't happy with something and yeah, it, it ultimately he did reject the Bulls and sign with the Magic. Yeah. Well, it certainly helped them. They were uh, giving mm. the Bulls a run for their money and of course we then get that famous quote that 45 isn't 23 and mm. basically showing the red flag to a bull there pardon the pun but like bringing him back to the famous number and we we talked about the other you know players who had changed their numbers but you never see a player unretire a number and go mm. i want this back again so um but of course they do end up losing that series and you sort of talked about it earlier tim grover sort of saying let me know what you know saying to jordan let me know when you want to you know go back to training and he goes let's go tomorrow and <laughs> It just boggles the mind how much Jordan wanted to win, that he would, I guess, mm. forego a, you know, a, a decent sort of break in order to get his body back into to top shape. But before he did that, you've got Space Jam. <laughs> yeah. as, uh, as, a, as a bit of a, an older sort of person, I don't want to say you're old, but as someone who was older <laughs> at the time that Space Jam came out, yeah. I was only about three or four at the time, but... How big was that movie for you? Huge. I literally remember the day that I went to see it, and really, was, yeah. Like I remember, I was at my friend's house, and we were having dinner, and I, I think I was eating really slow, or I didn't like the food, and my friend's dad was like, <laughs> "You need to finish, or you're not going to get to see the movie," which is kind of weird in hindsight. But anyway, that's what happened, <laughs> and it was kind of before my true fandom for the NBA started because I think I'd been playing like NBA Live on the PS1, NBA Live 97. Shout out to EA Sports when they used to make good games. Um, But (laughs) then, yeah, I don't know which came first off the top of my head. Space Jam probably came first. And that was probably what lit a little bit of a fire. Like you'd heard of Michael Jordan being in Australia but you didn't get a chance to see him. So that probably was uh, what really got me to go, okay, this guy's the goat, you know. <laughs> Ten-year-old ten Jono's going, he's the goat and uh, greatest of all time and I'm getting to see him in a movie. It's pretty cool. And I think that from, from there on probably, it it may have set a path for my fandom of the Bulls, I think. But it's it's a bit hard to be sure when you're that young, but it was definitely a yeah. major thing. And it was a huge part of... Um, the next kind of five or six years, I'd watch that on VHS all the time. I could probably quote the whole thing. And it's it's fun to hear because I'm such a, you know, so engrossed in the NBA community now. All the like uh, personalities that work in the NBA media, media, they rag on that movie all the time and talk about how terrible it is. And it's just like, oh man, I kind of like it. I need to watch it again. I think we might do a comedy rewind uh with you and Brendan recapping Space Jam over the next couple of months. I would be months, very so. much down for that, Mr. Peck. Yeah, a bit of cross-promotion <laughs> cross, cross promotion there. I was just going to say, they glossed over 
the Magic series in a way that disappointed me. We didn't see any really, we didn't see any interviews with Shaq. We didn't see any interviews with Penny. They just kind of went down the Bulls focus with Horace Grant and made it look like he was Mm. kind of like the star of the team, which was (laughs) kind of bizarre because Shaq was such a force at that point in his his career. Um, So that was a kind of disappointing because I wanted to hear what it was like for Shaq to say like, yeah, we knocked off the Bulls and what that was like for them. But to go from that, yeah, as you said, into shooting Space Jam and to see the training regime that he had built around shooting a Hollywood movie was amazing wasn't it like they, they built that court yeah. for him which i knew that <laughs> the they built Dome. that court but uh yeah and to the pickup games that's that was like that's new footage that i've seen or heard a lot of people kind of buzzing about the you know we're seeing mm-hmm. Jawan howard with his shirt off and yeah, we're nice, seeing... <laughs> uh, nice uh i guess mention for Jawan howard who hasn't been seen in about 10 years so. yeah it was um it was great and apparently there's not much footage that exists beyond what they showed which is unfortunate because from what like reggie miller was saying and what uh they were talking about those pickup games it sounded like it was kind of the best of the best at in the league at that point and mj's opportunity to kind of scout out some of these younger talents yeah it reminds me a lot of the uh the dream teams game in monte carlo how it's like it's got that pickup vibe to it, but it's still very physical mm. and, and fierce, which is, you know, more proof that Jordan only wants the best around him. So, um, and you sort of touched on it there, his his training regime in around not only filming a movie, but also trying to get your body back into basketball shape. And they, of course, even touch on his return to basketball in Space Jam, where they're like... yeah. Well, he's, he's not been that great in baseball and he wants to come back to, to basketball. Um, and I read some weird weird theory that um, Swackhammer was inspired by Jerry Krause. Who knows? Um, that's great. I don't know about that, but that's great. <laughs> I don't know if Danny DeVito would feel any you know positively about that. But um, yeah, it, it's so weird to see him doing as much as he can. And, but I guess... It also shows the amount of pull that he has to be, I guess, in the negotiations for the movie going, Mm. I'm not doing this movie unless you build me a full basketball court combined with my personal trainer and a full gym. So, And to see the the sort of aerial view of uh, the the Jordan Dome, I'm saying in air quotes, um, was just, I guess, the amount of pull that man had. So crazy stuff imagine if they resumed the nba season using a court like that (laughs) no no spectators or anything just pick up i mean you you joke about it but i'd say that they're looking for any way to get that season going and that could have been the way to do it but um we then move into the start of the 95 season and training camp for that team was a war because this is jordan back or I guess approaching his his peak physical fitness. And um, he's a fierce, fierce man at this point. And you can see why, because he gets in a fight with Steve Kerr. Like, let's Mm -hmm. be honest, Steve Kerr is not a big man. Like, he's probably big in terms of regular human size. Like, as a point guard, around 6'3". Yeah, Yeah, like, I'm 6'1", and people call me tall in normal sense. Mm. But for a basketball sense, I'm tiny. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm barely a point guard, so... Um, so, and it, MJ sort of says, like, you know, I felt bad picking a fight with the smallest guy in the team. So, um, it's just a weird sort of thing for, you know, modern day height and whatnot. <laughs> but the fact that Steve Kerr sort of stood up for himself that much sort of um, allowed Jordan to see what he was made of and gave him a bit more respect, I guess. And it's... Do you think it's kind of weird that it took someone trying to start a fight or sort of physically interacting in that way to gain respect. Surely there are better ways to gain respect. Yeah. I mean, that seems to be what it took. <laughs> There's stories about Bill Cartwright in the previous roster basically doing the same thing. I don't think they ever fought, but he essentially threatened Michael. Like, if you say that to me again, or if you do that to me again, I'm going to take you out and put you on the ground. 
and Bill Cartwright's a big boy, like he's <laughs> seven footer. Um, mm. So I think that was like the equivalent of Steve Kerr punching or shoving him and taking a punch. But yeah, for for a guy like Steve Kerr, he seems like the nicest dude, the most like down to earth, I guess, normal mm. athlete. Like yeah, the kind of school teacher you might have had like a PE teacher he kind of gives off that vibe <laughs> yeah and um yeah yeah like I could see him teaching yeah you know maths and and uh PE and, and biology <laughs> but I love I've always loved Steve Kerr since like NBA Live 97 because he had such a high three-point rating and I feel like they gave him a custom animation when he shot the ball because it would just like go so slowly through the air and it would always go in so I loved to to use Steve Kerr back then so I've always been a fan of his and to kind of learn in later years like especially when he was working with either ESPN or TNT I can't remember but as an analyst he would do these um, you know sit down conversations with people like Chris Webber and um, Reggie Miller and whoever and they were just telling stories and there's the story of, of this fight that we hear recapped on the last dance and um yeah will, will Perdue, who we've also seen in the documentary i think he got into it with michael so whether it was physical or um confrontational verbally i think michael had to see that you had the fire in you to, to fight back and stand up to him to to earn respect and that's mm. what's so funny about scott burrell because he didn't do that he was too nice, <laughs> and that, we're, we're probably getting to him because you know he had a, a major. Um, he's, he's kind of been like a running storyline through the whole thing as like the young rookie that we're seeing in the modern day footage of MJ kind of teasing him. But it was great to see him have that kind of twenty three point game in the, the playoffs a bit later and um, show that you don't have to punch Michael to earn his respect. <laughs> you just have to you have to tolerate him and not be uh, too intimidated to to perform, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, clearly, it seems to help the team because they've they've gone on an absolute tear and, and obviously the best season at that point, hmm. um, we, we should say, 72 and 10, like unheard of at that point in time. Like, yeah. and, and obviously the, the newspapers and the, the magazines call them the greatest team of all time. But of course, we got the the famous statement: "It don't mean a thing without the ring." If, like, obviously, Golden State they won seventy three and lost. Um, surely, this means that the Bulls are still regarded as the greatest team of all time. Yeah, it's a tough one, and it's definitely a good debate because the eighty six Celtics were a team that, up until that point, had been clearly the best team of all time. They had. Um, an amazing season. They won the championship. I think they had six Hall of Famers, something ridiculous like that. And it was a time that the league had a lot deeper rosters, like Kevin McHale, probably the second best guy in the team. He's coming off the bench as a sixth man. So to go from that, and then you're adding like the Timberwolves, you're adding Miami Heat, the Hornets, the Raptors. Uh, you're adding all these extra teams, which dilutes the league to a degree and means that there's way more losing teams, I guess like the Raptors, even though they were one of the teams to beat the bulls in this 72 win season, they were a fresh team. Them and the Grizzlies, I think they won like between 15 and 20 games that year. So you had a lot of, um, of changes happening in the league and I think that helped the Bulls rack up those wins. So you factor in the context and you look at what the Warriors did and by winning more games in probably a more competitive uh, environment for the NBA, mm. I think you can definitely make a case for the Warriors. Um, the Bulls kind of had three stars and then some good role players, uh, whereas those Celtics and those Warriors were probably more stacked across the board they just didn't have michael jordan well yeah exactly um and it's probably another debate we'll get to i guess after the series is finished we've got far too many debates to have <laughs> bulls and warriors mj and and um lebron but uh we'll keep it for another time um but we do end with the 96 finals 
or so, sort of, uh, against the mm. Sonics. And obviously we don't get too much talk about them in today's media because they don't exist anymore. They've obviously moved to OKC. But, you know, Sean Kemp and Gary Payton, two of the, the most, you know, toughest defending uh, players around at that time, obviously. Payton's nickname, The Glove, is being one of the better um, defensive uh, point guards at the time throwback actually sort of said can you think of a a better sort of defensive point point guard and I, I joked that uh, Matthew Delavadova but um, <laughs> it's I'll, I'll keep that to a down low but the Sonics were very good weren't they they were they won 61 games that year which in an ordinary season would be really impressive uh, it's 11 games less than the Bulls won that year uh, it was kind of surprising to see how much they'd been written off and we see um i can't remember which of the talking heads it was uh maybe will bond maybe it was Ahmad rashad say that basically everyone saw this as a walk in the park for the bulls like it was going to be the most one-sided finals matchup ever and i don't mm. know if that was a comment on how good the sonics were or if it was simply to say that this was the best bulls team that they'd seen. There's even been some debate and different discussions in podcasts that I've been listening to that the 92 Bulls were even better than this 96 Bulls team. So, as, But as far as their level of dominance, you can't really dispute that they were a cut above their competition in 96. So, yeah, I, I'm surprised that they didn't give Sean Kemp a bit more of a G up. It was kind of just like Gary Payton and his alley-oop partner, Sean Kemp. Again, like similar to the Shaq thing with the Magic, I think that it was just they're trying to tell the Bulls story here and Kemp probably mm. wasn't as much of a factor as GP. But yeah, definitely a solid team. Schrempf was a great European player. Hersey Hawkins was a perfectly fine shooting guard and Nate McMillan was on that team too. So it wasn't just a bunch of scrubs that ended up in the finals. It was... It was a great team. Um, they just didn't have Jordan again. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, it also just goes to show how many good teams the Bulls had in that sort of eight-year period. So mm -hmm. yeah. um, we we do get Peyton sort of, I guess, trying to lock down MJ. And he, he makes this, you know, the, makes some pretty bold statements uh, about sort of closing him up, uh, yeah. which Jordan is then given um on an ipad and we get the famous the now famous meme of him laughing at uh, his comments um you love that i could see you uh, posting that a couple of times dude, that is that's my favorite thing of the whole documentary it's so disrespectful to gary payton to just oh, literally absolutely. laugh at his suggestion that he did a good job against michael um i mean we saw it he got held to some way below average shooting percentages when Gary was guarding him, uh, for at least for two of the games. I think he averaged 23 points with Gary guarding him, which, again, it's still pretty good. It's not mm. like Michael Jordan finals level good, but it was enough <laughs> for them to win. And I, I guess what Michael was saying was that he was distracted. Like, it, Gary Payton wasn't a problem for me. He, he might have been guarding me when I didn't play well, but I guess he's implying there were other reasons and it probably is the whole Father's Day looming event and the, the, like the emotional toll that it was playing on him to be going through such a high-pressure experience without his father by his side. Yeah, we do finish up with uh, the Father's Day game, um, which is basically the, the crowning moment for that uh, that season for the Bulls. This was hard to watch. I don't know about you, mm. but like I found this particularly moving um, for a number of reasons. Like, firstly, Jordan is human. We we sort of find you know as yeah. as a as a player of his quality and and his, I guess, robotic sort of standards. We 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 see him playing a fantastic game as normal, but just to see him sort of crying and and being sort of you know, emotional like that was, was hard to take. And um, obviously it's the first championship he would have won without his dad and, and whatnot. The The choice of music, the cover of Teardrop was, was very good. Um, but 
as, as someone who hasn't seen their dad in about almost a year, like I haven't seen him since October last year. Mm. Um, this, this was, it was, it was tough. Like, um, I'm not afraid to say that I shed a few tears watching it. Um, and I mean, of course, for yourself, John, as a, as a new father, like you must feel pretty sort of, I guess, emotionally connected to it mm. with, with the link to, to your child. Yeah. I think like everyone has a dad, like that's a very general statement. Not everyone has a dad, but most people can relate to having a father figure in your life that you someone you look up to. It could even be your mum, could be anyone, but the relationship that he had with his dad it was a special one. And I, I hope we all have something like that we can relate to. So to put yourself in his shoes as someone that's lost that at that point in life, like it's it's never easy to lose uh, a parent, I think, and to lose them when you're basically the age that I am now is just such a hard thing to have to deal with for someone that was already um, living a life that didn't have much normalcy. Like to have a figure in your life like that to keep you grounded, to not treat you like some super duper star, but like your son. And I think the fact that they did such a great job of uh, showing how integral his dad was to um, his, uh, I, what's the word? Like his, um, his inner circle and to mm. keeping him, his mental health and everything. Like, I, I think that they really brought that into great context of how hard it was for him to be there at all without his dad, let alone doing all that and experiencing the highs and lows without his dad there to share it with him. And I think that's where that shot of him in the locker room, uh, holding the trophy and crying. That is, I wish my dad was here because I'm experiencing something that's so great, but it's missing something and it shouldn't be missing something. Mm. And I mean, I've seen photos of that. I think I've seen footage of it before. I've never heard the audio and the sound of him wheezing on the floor uh, with cameras all around him in public, essentially, was, yeah, it was emotional. I think I teared up as well. And I saw a clip. It was a bit longer, like an unedited clip of that on Twitter. And it ends with a bunch of people around telling the cameras to get out and give him some privacy. I'm surprised that they didn't do that earlier, really. It, it seems like mm. such an invasive moment. And I, I get it. It's the media. It's in. It's at the, it's the end of the NBA Finals. Of course, like, they're going to do that. But a similar thing happened with Dirk Nowitzki after the 2011 Finals. They were doing the presentations for uh, the trophy, the MVP. And he was in the locker room bawling his eyes out. And the PR people for the Mavs had to go and find him. And they're like, you have to come now. And he's like, I can't. And that's like, you have to. Like, they're about to give out the MVP trophy. Um, so it's not unusual for someone to have that kind of breakdown, like that releasing of emotions that you've been holding up or struggling with or dealing with or, um, you know, that feeling of finally achieving something you've been working towards for so long. So the fact that it's, caught on camera like i enjoyed it from like that voyeuristic perspective that we have like we're watching a documentary yeah. here but at the same time you're a little conflicted like you feel like i shouldn't be seeing this like no one should mm. be seeing this and um yeah that was a really emotional end to a emotional couple episodes we had um by my tally we had scotty pippen crying in the locker room we had bill cartwright cl crying um, at the same point when Scotty refused to go into that game. We had Jordan getting emotional at the end of episode seven. Uh, I don't know if Steve Kerr cried when he got punched in the face, but it might, may have happened. <laughs> and, um, you know, people crying when Jordan retired. And then this emotional breakdown uh, at the end of the 96 final. So, yeah, we're all a bit spent. We need another week to recover, I think. <laughs> Well, we need another week to recover, but I don't think we're going to get any sort of comfort with the, the final two episodes coming up. But uh, 
we do end with the the start of the 98 uh, conference finals against the Pacers with that quote mm. from Reggie Miller. All right, this is it. I'm going to retire Michael Jordan. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well... We'll Not if he goes. has anything to say about it, but we all know how it ends. But yeah, I think that's a, a perfect place to uh, to end the episode and to end uh, the recording for us today. If you do have any comments, queries, questions, or complaints, you can always do so with the hashtag HoopDreams. Uh, and you can follow us all on 8Bits Social at WeAre8Bit. You can follow me at It's Tilby and Jono. Where can they follow you? You can catch me at Jono himself. And we have one episode left. And hopefully we're going to be having quite a few of our friends here to discuss what has been an incredible documentary series with us. But uh, Mm. until that time, from me, Matt Tilby, and from John Opec, it is goodbye for now. Stay inside, stay safe, and have a good one. Keep dreaming.